Welcome. Well, October has almost run its course, and I have returned with the second of my mini-episodes honoring the season. So let me ask you, listener, what do you think about lycanthropy? You know, shape-shifting of humans into animals, examples of which, depending on where you live, include werewolves, werefoxes, werehyenas, tigers, and jaguars. Montague Summers, in his book The Werewolf in Lore and Legend, published in 1933, defined a werewolf as follows. Precisely to define the werewolf is perhaps not altogether easy. We may, however, say that a werewolf is a human being, man, woman, or child, more often the first, who either voluntarily or involuntarily changes or is metamorphosed into the apparent shape of a wolf and who is then possessed of all the characteristics, the foul appetites, ferocity, cunning, the brute strength, and swiftness of that animal. In by far the greater majority of instances, the werewolf to himself, as well as to those who behold him, seems completely to have assumed the furry lupine form. The shape-shifting is for the most part temporary, of longer or shorter duration, but it is sometimes supposed to be permanent. The transformation, again, such as it is, if desired, can be affected by certain rites and ceremonies, which in the case of a constitutional werewolf are often of the black goetic kind. The resumption of the original form may also then be wrought at will. Werewolfery is hereditary or acquired, a horrible pleasure born of the thirst to quaff warm human blood, or an ensorceling punishment and revenge of the dark Ephesian art. Montague Summers was specifically addressing werewolves in this, but his definition probably can be applied to all of the types of were-animals found throughout the world. Regardless of what logic tells us concerning the ability and believability of some people being able to physically turn into savage beasts, some have given credence to the concept. And that belief goes as far as the frightened mob attempting to try and execute individuals thought guilty of the affliction. Take, for example, the case of Peter Stube. Or maybe you've heard the name as Peter Stump or Peter Stube or Peter Stumpf. If you're in the know, Stube was an alleged 16th century German werewolf. And this is his story as it was related in a pamphlet published after his trial and execution. That pamphlet bears a long title. So if you want to look it up later, you better get a pen and pencil ready now and start writing quickly. The title is A True Discourse, Declaring the Damnable Life and Death of One Stube Peter, a Most Wicked Sorcerer, who in the likeness of a wolf committed many murders, continuing this devilish practice 25 years, killing and devouring men, women, and children, who for the same fact was taken and executed the 31st of October last, passed in the town of Bedburg, near the city of Cologne in Germany. 
truly translated out of the High Dutch, according to the copy printed in colon, brought over into England by George Boris, Ordinary Post, the 11th day of this present month of June 1590, who did both see and hear the same. Whew. Just who was this Peter Stube? Well, we know he was a werewolf. He grew up in the Bedburg area of Germany and was born circa 1530. He was evidently kind of a dick from a young age because the pamphlet describes him as a youth greatly inclined to evil and practicing of wicked arts even from 12 years. Now, let me make it clear. I'm not judging him for pursuing the practice of magic. I'm calling him a dick because he was using the knowledge for evil. I don't care if you use such knowledge to aid others or even for self-gain. Just don't fuck with other people, all right? Via the use of necromancy and sorcery, Stuba is reported to have acquainted himself with many infernal spirits and fiends. His ultimate goal is alleged to be the accrual of fame and having people across the world speaking about him. What a vain son of a bitch, says the podcaster. Stuba continued working with the black arts until his dying day, which we'll get to a little later on. For all of his want for uh, fame, one personage whose attention Stuba did attract was that of the devil himself. Once he caught his nib's attention, Stuba, having a tyrannous heart and a most cruel, bloody mind, the pamphlet says, asked that he be granted the ability to transform into a beast so that he could act upon his evil intent toward his fellow humans without the threat of his actual identity being discovered. Well, according to the written account, the devil, who saw him a fit instrument to perform mischief as a wicked fiend, pleased with the desire of wrong and destruction, gave unto him a girdle, which being put about him, he was straight transformed into the likeness of a greedy, devouring wolf, strong and mighty, with eyes great and large, which in the night sparkled like unto brands of fire, a mouth great and wide, with most sharp and cruel teeth, a huge body and mighty paws. And no sooner should he put off the girdle, but presently he should be appeared in his former shape, according to the proportion of a man, as if he had never been changed. Just what did Stuba think of and do with his gift? Well, let me tell you, he was overjoyed. The form of a ravenous wolf fit his desire as well as his personal nature, and the portability of the belt allowed him to easily carry and maybe more importantly, to conceal it from others when it was not in use. Once he became owner of this magical fashion accessory, he began to attack locals and anyone in general who pissed him off. Again, quoting from the 1590 pamphlet, No sooner should they or any of theirs walk abroad in the fields or about the city, but in the shape of a wolf he would presently encounter them 
and never rest till he had plucked out their throats and tear their joints asunder. And after he had gotten a taste hereof, he took such pleasure and delight in shedding blood, and he would night and day walk the fields and work extreme cruelties. Stuba was also said to walk the streets of Colon, Bedburg, and another town whose name that I can't pronounce, spelled C-P-E-R-A-D-T, in some of his finest clothing, and graciously greet and speak with the families and friends of his victims. Again, what a dick. And, while on these walks, if he would espy an alluring victim, he would stalk them, waiting for them to leave the protection of the town. Once they were outside the city limits, presumably in a secured or safe, safe for Stuba, that is, area, he would attack them and rape them, then transform into his lupine form and murder them. He would also roam the countryside looking for prey. If he would happen to come across a group of young women or girls out in the fields doing their chores or milking their cattle, he would transmogrify into his wolf form and scatter the gathering, setting his sights on one of the unfortunates, catching her, sating his lust, and then killing her. His depravities were so widespread and horrific, it is said that the whole province was living in fear of what they thought to be a ravenous wolf. I must say, their fear was well-founded, for the written account says, he had murdered 13 young children and two goodly young women, big with child, tearing the children out of their wombs in the most bloody and savage sort, and after eat their hearts, panting, hot, and raw, which he accounted dainty morsels and best agreeing to his appetite. Moreover, he used many times to kill lambs and kids and such like beasts, feeding on the same most usually raw and bloody, as if he had been a natural wolf indeed, so that all men mistrusted nothing less than his devilish sorcery. One note, kids here refers to young goats rather than children, although, uh, in my opinion, children can be considered beasts. The pamphlet also outlines some of Stuba's other sins, among which were as follows. He forced an incestuous relationship upon his daughter, Belil. This liaison produced a son. Stuba is reported to have loved his son, but he was so wicked that he eventually murdered him by enticing him out into the fields and then into a nearby forest and there, quote, most cruelly slew him, which done, he presently eat the brains out of his head as a most savory and dainty, delicious mean to staunch his greedy appetite. He also had an incestuous relationship with his sister. And that not being enough, he had a sexual attachment to a woman named Catherine Trompin, who was described as, quote, a woman of tall and comely stature, of exceeding good favor, and one that was well esteemed among her neighbors. Lastly, the devil reputedly also sent an imp in female form with whom Stuba exercised his lechery for a space of seven years. 
Before we continue and wrap this up, let's pause a minute for a word about Anchor Podcasting. And we're back. So let's continue with the story of Peter Stube. Eventually, all good things have to come to an end, and the same applies to Stube's evil ways. One of his final crimes is described thusly. He on a time met with two men and one woman whom he greatly desired to murder. In subtle sort, he conveyed himself far before them in their way and craftily crouched out of their sight. But as soon as they approached near the place where he lay, he called one of them by his name. The party, hearing himself called once or twice by his name, supposing it was a familiar friend that in jesting sort stood out of his sight, went from his company toward the place from whence the voice proceeded. But he was no sooner entered within the danger of this transformed man, but he was murdered in the place. The rest of his company, staying for him, expecting still his return, but finding his stay over long. The other man left the woman and went to look for him, by which means the second man was also murdered. The woman then seeing neither of both return again, in heart suspected that some evil had fan upon them. And therefore, with all the power she had, she sought to save herself by flight, though it nothing prevailed, for she was soon overtaken by this light-footed wolf, whom... When he had first deflowered, he after most cruelly murdered. The men were after found mangled in the wood, but the woman's body was never after seen, for she, the caitiff, had most ravenously devoured, whose flesh he esteemed both sweet and dainty in taste. And for those of you who are curious, caitiff is an old word for coward. After 25 years or so of horror and terror, the citizens of the area were to the point that they would not travel unless they had sufficient means of defense and protection. Also, if you can believe it, they were sick and tired of finding, quote, arms and legs of dead men, women, and children scattered up and down the fields. The folk unsuccessfully tried every means they could think of to capture the wolf, but despite their failures, they refused to give up. According to the pamphlet, in the end it pleased God, as they were in readiness and provided to meet with him, that they should espy him in his wolfish likeness at what time they beset him round about and most circumspectly set their dogs upon him in such sort that there was no means to escape. Seeing that he was cornered, Stuba removed his magic belt and resumed his human form. But his pursuers saw the change take place and they, quote, came unto him and talking with him, they brought him by communication home to his own house and finding him to be the man indeed and no delusion or fantastical motion they had him incontinent before the magistrates to be examined. The judicial authorities determined that Stuba was to be put to the rack. Terrified, Stuba proceeded to voluntarily confess all of the crimes he had committed in the past 25 years. The murders, the lycanthropy, the dealings with Satan, and everything. 
He even told them where they could find his magic girdle, which he had thrown aside just prior to his capture. The magistrates did send a party out to retrieve the belt, but it was never found. Everyone assumed that the devil had reclaimed it and abandoned Stuba to, quote, endure the torments which his deeds deserved. The magistrates also arraigned Belil Stube and Catherine Trompen, naming both as accessories to Stube's murders. The final judgment, pronounced on October 28, 1589, reads as follows. Stube Peter, as principal malefactor, was judged first to have his body laid on a wheel, and with red-hot burning pincers in ten several places to have his flesh pulled off from the bones. After that, his legs and arms to be broken with a wooden axe or hatchet. Afterward, to have his head struck from his body, then to have his carcass burned to ashes. Also, his daughter and his gossip were judged to be burned quickly to ashes at the same time and day, with the carcass of the aforesaid Peter Stuba. The sentence was carried out on the 31st of October in the town of Bedburg. Supposedly, many attended the execution, including some of the princes of Germany. Following the execution, the magistrates commanded that a pole be erected in Bedburg. This pillar was set through the center of the wheel upon which Stube had been broken. The carved depiction of a wolf set within a wooden frame was also suspended from the post. Stube's severed head was then set atop the pole, while 16 pieces of wood were suspended from the wheel to represent the 16 confirmed victims of Stube's crimes. The ordinance for the creation of the gruesome monument also declared that it was to remain in place for perpetuity, serving as a reminder of the mayhem wrought by Stube. And that was the end of Stube's crimes. And what have we learned today, listeners? Don't be a murderous werewolf. Don't deal with the devil. And if you do, then don't get caught. Have a happy Halloween. This has been What Do You Think About? Our theme music, In Suspense, is provided by podsummit.com. Thanks to all you listeners. If it allows you to do so, please take the time to rate our podcast on your favorite listening platform. If you want to get in touch with us, drop us a line at wdouta at gmail.com or go to the website anchor.fm forward slash wdouta and leave us a voice message. Or you can just visit our Facebook page, anchor.fm forward slash WDOUTA, and leave us a message there and look for updates on releases. As I have been mentioning, this podcast is set to end next month. I'll release an episode on November 1st. John should have one for November 15th. And then the final episode should drop two weeks later on the 29th. Thanks to everyone who's taken the time to give us a listen. Copyright 2022 by John Gordos and Jim Dumermuth.